Last week we finished up Isaiah 58, and I want to back up to 58 verse 13. Remember earlier on, talked about the eunuch who had no future and the Gentiles who had no future, and both of them were given a future if they kept the Sabbath. And then we're talking about Israel here in 58. So if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, cycle in Isaiah, calls them up short for things they're doing wrong, and then offers them hope. And in this case, the hope is obviously connected to Sabbath observance. And as we said last time, for God, Sabbath is a big deal. And honoring the Sabbath is a big deal. To go with a digression here, the Sabbath is fundamental. In other words, when I talked on Shabbat about the idea of the difference between cyclical time and historical time, where cyclical time is the cycle of the Sabbath, the cycle of the new moons, the cycle of the feasts, that kind of thing. And then historical time is as those cycles go round and round, we are in fact progressing toward an end. And it seems to me that the Sabbath is sort of the fundamental thing that keeps you from going rogue. Every Shabbat, you come back and rest on the Sabbath, reorient yourself, get yourself focused on the things of God for a day. And then when you go back out, you can't go too far astray in six days. But the idea that the Sabbath keeps bringing you back seems to be foundational to everything that God does in Scripture. So now we're going to go in 59 to a rebuke. 58 ends with, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. It is sort of an article of Christian faith that God always listens to you. That's not scriptural. If you are not doing the things that God would have you do, he quits listening until you come back to doing what he wants you to do. And one of the things in Leviticus 26, my translation is, if you treat the Lord casually, he will treat you casually. And the idea there is if you ascribe to chance or mother nature or something, the things that God does, and you treat him casually, he will treat you casually. And the deal here is he'll quit listening to you. So the idea that God is always there and he's sort of your handy go-to major domo that will always bail you out is not true, certainly not in Scripture. So back to Isaiah 59, he says, my hand isn't shortened that I can't save. In other words, it's not because I cannot help. It's because your iniquities have made a separation between you and me, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So it is not a lack of capability on God's part. And one of the things that shows up in Scripture a lot 
is the idea when Israel drifts away and gets itself into big trouble, they say things like, well, where's our God? we got a covenant with him. He's supposed to save us. And what God is saying here is, yeah, if you were keeping your end of the covenant, I would. But you're not, and I won't. So verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. Cool, straightforward. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. This whole section here starts off in verse 4. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. What that says is they are using the courts for advantage. The way I would describe it is the courts simply become another arena in which the game of life is played. And we see that playing out right now in Washington, where you have one political party who did not win an election is going to law and the courts to try and overturn the results of the election that they did not win in the ballot box. So they regard the courts, if you will, as simply another arena in which politics can be played. What God is saying here is that's wrong. The idea that you go and you go to court as simply another tool to gain an advantage over those with whom you are competing is not right. So what he's saying here is you guys go to court, but you don't go there for justice. What you go there for is simply another way of gaining advantage over your opponents. And in order to do that, you speak lies and you weave a web of deceit. This image of the spider web, the idea there is you have this web of lies or this web of unjust laws and regulations which are not designed to promote justice, they are designed to entrap and to snare. So you have this web out there that those that you want to attack can fall into, quote, innocently, unquote, and what will happen then is you're caught in this web and you get taken into the courts and the courts then simply become politics by another measure. And God says that is evil, that is corrupt. The poster child for that at the moment, I mean, there have been poster children for that all along, is Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn, according to all the reports, some FBI guy came in and talked to him, and the guy said, yeah, no, I just need some information. And he misremembered something, and all of a sudden now he's caught in the courts, and his whole life is absorbed in this web that really has nothing to do with right and wrong has nothing to do with justice. 
It simply has to do with playing the game in the field of the courts as opposed to playing the game in the field of the ballot box. That's what God is talking against here. He's talking against using the mechanism of justice, which means something. The word justice means something. And he's saying you're using that mechanism of justice for ends that it was not designed to serve. The iniquity that is being spoken here is a corruption of the idea of justice. Because remember back in the Torah, one of the things that God says is you will establish judges and they will judge righteously. This is a commandment from God in the Torah. So it's important to God that societies be organized on the basis of being able to get actual justice. And what's being spoken of here in Isaiah 59 is when that mechanism that God has ordained, which is judges, is perverted and used for some purpose other than actual justice, God gets a bit miffed. The idea that no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. That's the key here that sets all of the rest of this up. There is no justice. We have this weave, uh, spider's web, and the serpent's eggs, the thing about a spider is a spider sets up a web to catch innocent bugs. In other words, the bugs that a spider catches in his web are not looking to interact with the spider. They're not looking to steal the spider's eggs. They're not looking to do anything with respect to the spider. They're just flying around carrying disease like they normally do, just minding their own business, carrying disease, flying around, and all bang, they're caught in a spider web. So the spider web idea here is talking about what I would call pettifogging bureaucratic regulations. It has been stated not terribly jokingly that the feds could indict a ham sandwich if they want to. That's a spider web. And all of that is designed not to promote justice, but to provide a web that they can use to snare those that they want to destroy. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I'm back in Isaiah 59 and verse 8. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, and no one who treads on them knows peace. The idea here is if you have set up these spider webs in your society and everything is subject to going to law, what that does is it changes the attitude of people. So instead of simply going through your life and doing what's right, you go through your life figuring out how you can operate within the law to your own advantage. And it's like all these political protests where people are screaming and yelling and saying, you violated this law, you violated that law, you did this wrong. 
the things that are being described are not biblically evil. They are simply violations of some bureaucratic or pettifogging law. And so what happens is with this spider web that is created, that Israel has created here, and we have created in our society, is right and wrong are no longer the standard. Legal and illegal become the standard, and those are different, you can tell, because they're spelled differently. The two terms are malum prohibitive and malum in se. Malum in se is Latin, which means evil in itself. That's things like theft, murder, rape. Malum prohibitum, it's an evil that is merely prohibited. So it is not immoral, it is simply illegal. In your example of crossing the white line in your car, that is malum prohibitum, not malum in se. This section in Isaiah 59 from 1 through 8 is talking about a society that has metastasized to the point where everything becomes a matter of law instead of a matter of right and wrong of following Torah. Verse 9, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. Remember in Deuteronomy 28, which we read on Shabbat, it says when you do well, the blessings will overtake you, it just will happen because God has ordered his universe that way that when you do according to Torah, blessings will overtake you. And when you operate in violation of Torah, curses will overtake you. So this one says, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. In other words, the society has become corrupt and there is no righteousness available. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. So the idea is the society that is that way has completely lost its way. They have lost the ability to discern right and wrong, good and evil, and they have substituted legal and illegal for those two concepts. According to scripture, walking in the light is a blessing. What's happening here because of the way they've set up their society or allow their society to become. I don't know that setting up their society is, is the right way. It's, it's, it's again one of those things that grows like kudzu and unless you keep bushing it back it just naturally grows because that's the way people are. But it leads to walking in darkness and not being able to find your way. Verse 11, we all growl like bears, we moan and moan like doves, we hope for justice, but there is none, for salvation, but it is far from us. How many protests have you seen in the last two years where you have crowds and crowds of people howling, just screaming? The idea here is there is no joy, there is no happiness, there is no peace in such a society because the society is not governed by biblical right and wrong, it is simply governed by the might and force of the state and whatever the state says is legal and illegal. You're talking about, in Musar, the idea that the soul is the thing that arbitrates between the body and the spirit. And if the soul is required to operate 
in artificialities instead of operating the way God designed it to be. That confusion that is sown there will go both up spiritually and down to the body, and, and you will be entirely confused. By the way, since I'm on a rant here, and this is political correctness, by the way. We call it political correctness. In old Soviet Union, they call it the party line, social credit in China, whatever. The state operates to make you say things that you know are false. The state doesn't care whether you believe it or not. It is enough that you say it. Because if you keep saying lies, what happens is your connection to reality frays, and you become very easy to control. So what we call as political correctness in the United States, where you can't say certain things and you must say certain other things, otherwise you'll lose your job or whatever, that's designed to make you speak lies. And as I say, they don't really care whether you believe it or not. That's not the important thing. The important thing is that you say it and you behave that way. The poster child for that is the new gender speak. By the way, gender is absolutely the wrong word. Gender is a grammatical term. Words have genders. In other words, masculine, feminine, neuter, gender. That's a grammatical term. People have sex. There is no such thing as you are male gender, you are female gender, you are neuter gender. That's a grammatical term. Biology doesn't deal in gender. Biology deals in sex. You are of the male sex or you are of the female sex. It's binary. You're one or the other. You can't be anything else. There's a lot of stuff in this chapter. So we've been growling like bears. We've been moaning like doves. Uh, we've been screaming at the UN Climate Conference. And as I say, most of our political discourse now is groups of people getting out into the street and screaming or getting into the halls of Congress and screaming. It's all yelling. There is no peace. There's no rational discourse. It is simply rage. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Does that sound like us? Verse 15, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. What is that saying? If you do not go along with the prevailing social ethos, you become a target. He who departs from evil, which is to say doesn't buy into all of the stuff we've been talking about heretofore, that person then becomes a target of those who do do evil. And you can see that all over the place. Yeah, 15 and a half. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. As I said before, and I will say one more time because it's a good place to say it here, justice and legality are two different concepts. This is a society that is operating according to legality. They're not violating man's laws. They are simply ceasing to operate in justice as God defines it. Verse 16. 
He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So I am going to suggest that this is now shifting. This is God, Yeshua, seeing the state of affairs or Yehovah seeing the state of affairs and he then intercedes and what happens is Israel goes into exile. I am a firm believer that Yeshua and God are the same being. So the idea that this may be Yeshua or it may be God sending him to exile, probably Yeshua, I will say. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. That, by the way, is quoted again in Ephesians chapter 6. Same exact metaphor. Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. Here, however, we depart from Ephesians. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in a cloak of zeal. I'm saying this is talking about Yeshua. And I'm saying that this is talking about Yeshua's second coming. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those of Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. I am seeing that as a second coming. Verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Can anybody say new covenant? That's an abbreviated statement of the new covenant. The new covenant appears starting back in Deuteronomy and you get vignettes of it through the prophets, you'll get it in Jeremiah, you'll get it in Ezekiel, and you'll get it here in Isaiah also. It shows up lots of places, but the condition there where he will put his words in their mouth of them and their offspring forever is a statement of the new covenant. Everyone shall know the Lord, no one shall teach his neighbor because everyone shall know me kind of thing. Chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is Revelation talk. You want to go to Revelation 16, verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And this should take you back, of course, to the plague of darkness in Egypt. In the plague of darkness in Egypt, the children of Israel had light in all their dwellings. It was only the Egyptians that were in darkness. And so here, the idea of darkness covering the earth and a thick darkness covering the people, and then the Lord arises you with glory, and what he's saying is you will have light in your dwellings, just like you did in Egypt. And 
the thing that will happen in verse 3, and back in Isaiah 60, verse 3, the nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. In other words, you will stand out in the darkness of the world by the light of the Lord who is with you. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. The idea here is a regathering of scattered Israel. And they shall come from afar, and their daughters will be carried. And for all of you who have had small children, that's the way women typically carry their small kids. Is they tuck them on a hip, and off they go. Verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. The idea of you being radiant in the darkness, and then the wealth of the nations coming to them, again takes you back to the Exodus, where as they were getting ready to leave Egypt, each one went to his neighbor, and the neighbors gave them wealth to take out. So this is Exodus talk, Revelation talk. Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. Can you say BMWs and Mercedes? They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Stop there for a minute. What did the Magi bring to the Christ child? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here you notice there's no myrrh. And the idea there is myrrh is a funereal spice. It is used to anoint dead bodies. So the second coming, myrrh is not going to be needed because he's not going to die. Just the gold and the frankincense. It's not original with me. So they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, gospel, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. So again, we're talking about New Jerusalem kind of stuff. We're talking about a rebuilt temple. We're talking about the place where you don't need street lights because the light of the Lord is in your presence. Or you are in the presence of the light of the Lord, whichever way you like to look at it. Verse 8. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish, first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Notice we have my beautiful house, and he has made who else beautiful here? Jerusalem, Zion. And if you go to Revelation, what you see is the new Jerusalem descending from heaven adorned like a bride. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. And remember, one of the things that we have said over and over and over and over and over again, especially with respect to the Jubilee, that the thing that happens in Jubilee is not that the people get their land back, but that the land gets its people back. Israel, the land of Israel, is designed to have the Hebrew people upon it. And when they are not upon it, it's out of place. 
and you've all seen satellite photos of the land and you can tell the places where there are Jews and the places where there are Arabs because the place where there are Jews are green and lush and the place where there's Arabs are brown. The idea there is the land is going to get its people back. So when it says foreigners shall build up your walls, the king shall minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you, Zion, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. And again, I will remind you, although I've said it 36 times, so you should remember, this is being written well over a century before the Babylonian exile. So Jerusalem at this point is a going concern. It has not been struck. It has not been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar yet. It has not yet been destroyed by the Romans. So this is yet well over a century future from when this is written. Verse 11. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Again, this is New Jerusalem talk. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. I happen to be at the moment reading through Chronicles, and it's talking about the origin of the building materials for Solomon's temple. The timber all came from Lebanon. So the idea here that the cypress, the plain, and the pine shall come from Lebanon takes you back to the construction of Solomon's temple. The richness and opulence of that temple will be restored because we'll use the same building materials metaphorically, maybe literally, I don't know. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. I will give you Johnny Allen. As I am sure you know, in Revelation, you have new heaven and a new earth. You have the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, and you have the 12 tribes of Israel in there. Outside of that, you have the nations. So the nations continue to exist in the new heaven and the new earth. So they are people who have made it past the lake of fire and past the great white throne judgment. Everyone goes through the great white throne judgment. Everyone gets resurrected, good and bad alike. And everyone stands before Yeshua at the great white throne. So this could either be millennial reign stuff or it could be New Jerusalem stuff. It feels to me like New Jerusalem stuff. And I am speculating here wildly, okay? The nations will continue to exist. Those nations have been used by God in the past to chasten Israel. And God will deal with them and mete out justice to them. But you know, I expect we'll have Babylonians and Germans and Spaniards and Russians and all sorts of people who are going to be in the new heaven and the new earth who were members of nations that persecuted Israel before the resurrection. That's a guess. That's not thus saith anybody. Not even me for sure. I'm, I'm just guessing, okay? But it is scriptural that the nations will be 
in the new heaven and the new earth, and they will remain as the nations. They do not become Israel. They still come up to the feasts, all that kind of stuff. But they have made it past the lake of fire. So they are not people who have gone on to be crispy critters. They are redeemed, saved, if you will. Verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age, and you shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteous. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. This is, again, New Jerusalem, I think. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you notice we have a building material upgrade. We're going for the upgrade here. Verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. You have it in New Earth territory. 20. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. By the way, there is the answer to a question that somebody asked in Midrash within the last two or three weeks. We were talking in terms of the woman who married seven brothers, and in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And the question came up, what difference does it make? Because they're like angels, neither marrying or giving in marriage. Well, what this says, or pick it up in 21, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. That speaks to me of children. Now, one of the things we said with respect to angels neither marrying or giving in marriage that doesn't mean that they don't have reproductive organs. That means that they're not authorized to use them. And we have Jude and Genesis 9, where you've got the idea of perhaps angels cohabiting with human females and getting giants, which, by the way, is all over the mythologies of all the rest of the world. So Greek mythology, Roman, and Norse mythology, Teutonic mythology, all have these instances where you get randy gods fooling around with humans, and you get from that demigods. The idea of male and female, by the way, is wired into God's universe. God is masculine, the earth is feminine. God gives information, the earth executes and brings forth. So Isaiah 60 22 speaks to me as if there are going to continue to be children, unless we do it by parthenogenesis and become like amoebas and split. <laughs> <laughs> 